Hello and welcome to the Antifada, where unrest is best. I'm Jamie Peck. I'm Andy, the producer. And we are going to get to our interview in a minute with an organizer from No New Jails, NYC, and talk about all of the really good stuff they're doing within a prison abolitionist framework. But um, And we do raise the gulag question. Mm-hmm. I, I wish I had a button to press like Sam does when, uh, when someone says something like that and it's like got the dramatic music. Just Yeah, just like a little <laughs> snippet of the Soviet national anthem. Yes, exactly. We really got to get some sound drops in, in, in effect here. I don't want to steal uh, Matt Leck's thunder too much, though. But um, I just wanted to make a little addendum to our... I don't even know how long ago this was now, so it's like totally stale, but whatever. Uh, where When I talked about my trip to L.A., um, my mind was still so scrambled from my trip down the hallways of always in the desert that I forgot to mention that I saw The Cure which is like very on brand for a goth socialist to do. But, you know, we've all seen The Cure multiple times. So what was special about this time seeing The Cure? Um, I mean, I had never seen The Cure before. Um, I definitely cried a lot during uh, Just Like Heaven. I would say on a scale from 1 to 10, it was maybe an 11. Um, and it was, it was really great to finally see them. They sounded really good. Sir Rob Smith was... On point, and I don't know how much longer they're going to be a band, so it was really good that I got to see them. Despite seeing them at one of those shitty giant festivals, um, it took me so long, in fact. I was coming back from Tijuana that day, and the line was so fucking long to get into this thing. I waited in line for an hour. I missed all of the Deftones, except for a few songs, and I was really pretty sad about that, because as we all know, they are the thinking person's new metal band. So this is a festival with the Deftones and the Cure. It must have been a really cool crowd. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, I posted some videos on Instagram stories because I was bored when I was waiting in line. I was like, man, the line at this Goths for Bernie rally is really insane. Have you seen the Righteous Gemstones, the uh, the new like Kenny Powers type? No, show? but I would like to because I listened to the Chapo episode on it and it sounds very good. In a, a couple episodes ago, there was a really awesome goth club scene where it's just like like hard industrial music and an orgy going on. Nice. Yeah, every now and then I end up at one of those parties where I'm like, oh, this is like the prototypical like punk scene from a movie where like, you know, a square walks into this like demi mond oh, and there's all it. kinds of crazy yeah. shit going on. I'm like, yeah, that's actually th- those things are real. They're, they exist. Yeah, let me know next time. I, I certainly will. Oh, but the funny thing about The Cure, too, was then I went on Hassan Piker's Twitch stream and I talked about seeing The Cure and he had never heard of The Cure, which I found about as hard to believe as when Sam Cedar said he'd never heard of Ace of Base. But it makes more sense for Hassan, actually, because he grew up in Turkey and then he moved to uh, Miami, I believe, and worked in clubs and stuff. So I don't know when he would have heard The Cure during what kind that of music time period. does he listen to? Um, like weird Zoomer SoundCloud rap. Okay. I don't know. He played me some of it. It was, uh, I mean, it was almost inaudible to my aging ears, but we all know about the, uh, the trials and tribulations of, uh, Skullfuck Gate that Hassan got himself into a little while back. So the other day I was working at the majority report during the show and I got a text from Hassan with that picture of the little goth metal kids at the climate march with that adorable sign like, I want to die, but the planet doesn't. 
climate justice. And uh, I swear to God, concurrently with receiving that text, they started talking about Dan Crenshaw on the show. And I am not proud of this fact. I did make a joke at the expense of his eye. And um, Sam laughed in spite of himself. Michael was glad that I'd finally sunk to his level. And I was like, what have you done to my brain? I learned it from watching you, dad. I swear to God, like Hassan made that happen through magic. You want to be on Tucker so bad. Oh, I mean, you want to be the next Lauren Duca. Oh, well, Lauren Duca is quite successful. And from what I hear, a very nice person. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Great professor. Yeah, I hear she's like a really good teacher. None of her students have any complaints about her. She just like really rose to the occasion. And apparently she wrote a book about uh, socialist revolution and how to make it happen. So I'm looking forward to checking that out. Probably she'll, she'll come on the show if we're lucky. Comrade Duca, come on Antifada. So speaking of uh, goth orgies, we are going to have one. And Hell yeah. you can get uh, oral sex at it, I think. Uh, mm-hmm. I don't know if we can promise that, but... Maybe. Pretty good chance. There's like at least a 50-50 chance that if you come to our live show, you will get oral sex mm-hmm. from somebody. Yep. Um, and that will be at Littlefield on October 12th. Mm-hmm. We It is a crossover goth socialist variety hour with Pod Damn America. And I think we, we're finalizing our guests. Who do we have? Well, the guest list is not entirely final yet, but we do have Simone Norman, who you may remember from our episode that we did with her pretty recently. That's the top guest, right? Praxis. I mean, all the guests are tops in Mm -hmm. my mind. We have Leslie Lee III from Struggle Session. He Mm -hmm. doesn't even live in New York. Yeah. Well, guess what? He can travel. Oh, my God. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And uh, And? uh, oh, oh, wait, there is more. Uh, our old pal Virgil Texas. No, who that's you may too know. much. Yeah, I know. I tell know. Virgil I like to fuck off. Yeah, no, I'm I, I'm going to text him right now. I'm going to tell him if he shows up, we're going to call the cops. All right, that sounds like too much show. It uh, might be. Oh, and um, <laughs> you know, you, you need to f- focus when you're getting oral sex. You can't be that entertained. Um, I feel like our listeners are really advanced multitaskers, and that they're they're able to handle it all right include oh and and while all this is happening this veritable orgy of entertainment and literal orgies um we also have a drag performance from comrade barbie this is quite the show um i assume it's going to be sold out by the time we announce by the time this episode airs but if not we will have the links to the tickets in the show notes it is a uh, $12 advance, $15 day of at Littlefield, really Brooklyn, October 12th. everything you're getting. And there'll be an after party if you're not totally spent, which you probably will be. Yeah. I mean, if you feel like it after all that jazz, you can, uh, all, the, all that jizz and jazz, you can <laughs> uh, come to the after party at a bar TBD and fulfill your longstanding fantasy of partying with the Antifada and Pod Damn America when when the the parasocial becomes social. So what do we have today on the Antifada? Today I am very stoked about this guest. We just did the interview. They just left. We have Nadia Guyot, an organizer with No New Jails and a PhD candidate in cult- cultural anthropology at the CUNY Grad Center, researching drug courts 
and court mandated drug treatment. I feel like we should have Nadja back to talk about just that because that is a topic that I'm really interested in. Yeah, we might need some help with that in the future. But um, yeah, No New Jails is a really inspiring movement in the tradition, in the abolitionist tradition, um, working within an abolitionist framework. And right now, what they're trying to do is um, it, basically there's been sort of a liberal push to close Rikers Island um, and build new jails that are supposed to be better and more humane to put all of the prisoners into. This is Mayor de Blasio's plan. Um, de Blasio, who is hopefully, I mean, I don't even know if he's still alive after those sick burns that he sustained from Trump's tweet the other day. But um, no new jails is fighting against that plan um, and saying, hey, there's $11 billion here slated to build new jails. Why don't we take that money instead and invest in communities in ways that will decrease crime, trauma, and harm? So um, without further ado, here's our interview with Nadja from No New Jails. We should just jump right into this here. Um, I'm very impressed with what No New Jails is doing right now. Um, I read a very detailed plan to close Rikers and not replace it with anything. Um, so maybe we could start by giving a bit of a summary. Uh, what's No New Jails? What's the history? Who's involved with it? Uh, and what are you trying to do? Yeah, absolutely. So No New Jails is a campaign that formed uh, actually one year ago uh, this month to fight Mayor Bill de Blasio's jail expansion plan. The history of No New Jails is much longer than that. We have our roots and organizers from other movements fighting jail expansion in New York City, um, primarily the campaign to shut down Rikers, which was formed after Khalif Browder died by suicide. The demands of the campaign to shut down Rikers were always to shut down Rikers without building new jails. That campaign um, lasted from about 2015 to 2017. So many organizers in that campaign joined No New Jails. We also um, have organizers and take inspiration from the uh, two successful jail expansion fights in the Bronx um, undertaken by Community and Unity that successfully fought back against Mayor Bloomberg's plan to build two jails two separate times in the Bronx. And uh, many members of No New Jails are also coming from the Black Lives Matter movement and the fight against police violence and police murder. Um, we also have members who are currently incarcerated across New York State and across the country who um, help lead our vision of a city without a city without Rikers and ultimately a city without jails. So the movement has this longer history, um, building on successful abolitionist fights and abolitionist analyses that are coming from lots of different places and communities and struggles. But No New Jails uh, formed specifically after Mayor Bill de Blasio announced a plan to build new jails in New York City. He's been calling this a plan to close Rikers, but his plan doesn't include any legally um, guarantee, any legal guarantee or mandate that Rikers, Rikers will actually close. So No New Jails has formed in the wake of that announcement to push back against his plan. So um, our listeners probably know what like, I've heard of Rikers, um, but what, like what is Rikers? Uh, you know, why is it so atrocious that it seems to be the liberal consensus in the city to close it down? And um, like, what, what's the history of trying to close it? Yeah, absolutely. So 
Rikers was built in the 1930s. Um, it's on an island. Uh, most of the island of that the Rikers Island jails are on was built from landfill from the Second Ave subway line excavation. So the city began building up Rikers as a landfill, the island of Rikers as a landfill in the 19 teens and 20s, and decided to use the land for what they called at that time a penitentiary in, in that era. Rikers was built to replace um, the workhouses on... Blackwell's Island, Ward's Island, and Randall's Island. So these were places where primarily poor and working class people were warehoused for um, surviving poverty. And the conditions on those, in those workhouses was so bad, people were dying. Um, you would be sent to Blackwell's Island because you owed a debt and would die of tuberculosis, right? So there's this crisis in the existing workhouses, the workhouses that are functioning to manage crises of industrialization, crises of poverty, crises of capitalism in New York City. And the city proposed Rikers Island as the humane rehabilitative um, alternative to uh, those existing workhouses. Man, so it it seems like the idea of closing Rikers like that was some like that's somehow going to fix the problems uh, uh it, it's got a history there and Rikers itself was part of sort of a close the workhouses campaign right yeah exactly and it's also really important to recognize that by the time there was enough momentum behind um, the movement to close the workhouses the city government and the state government had known that conditions on the workhouses were that bad for about 40 years so Pressure started mounting in the, at the end of the 19th century to close the workhouses, and it wasn't until the 1930s that that had generated kind of enough political pressure for the politicians to actually take that on. And you see a similar thing now with the um, city's pseudo-interest or pseudo-investment in closing Rikers, right? We've known for generations that Rikers is toxic, dangerous, violent, that it exacerbates people's um, experiences of illness and interpersonal violence, that it isn't a solution to harm or trauma in communities. And it's only now, after years of community organizing, that the city has even taken a step towards acknowledging that Rikers must close. Um, but absolutely, as you're, as you're saying, Rikers was built as a rehabilitative, modern, progressive jail. Mm. Um, and generally, the history of jail construction in New York City is that, right? So every time the city has built a new detention facility, whether that's Rikers, the Brooklyn House of Detention, the Tombs, which is the Manhattan Jail, or Rosie's, which is the women's jail on Rikers, they've put forward that new jail construction as a solution to the crises of violence, dehumanization, and degradation in existing facilities. And this is nothing new. So what's the idea behind de Blasio's boroughs-based jail plan? Because um, I know it's being sold as a reform or something more humane. Um, uh, why are these jails supposed to be better? Is it just that they think like there's some kind of evil magic on Rikers Island that can't be reproduced elsewhere? Like how are how is this being sold to well-meaning liberals? Yeah, that's a great question. I think the city has really done a an impressively nefarious job of exceptionalizing Rikers and acting like somehow Rikers is the most violent or the only violent jail and ignoring conditions and violence in other city jails. So that's conditions in the Brooklyn House of Detention, conditions in the tombs, conditions in the Metropolitan Detention Complex, right, which is the federal jail in Sunset Park that last winter was without heat, hot water, 
energy or medical care for weeks on the coldest days of winter. That jail was built in 1992, right? So the problem with that jail isn't when it was built. Um, but the city has done a great job of exceptionalizing Rikers and treating it like it's the somehow the symbol of or emblematizes all of the violence of incarceration. And that by shutting down Rikers and building new facilities, somehow we can, the city can end or disrupt what they call the quote unquote culture of violence on Rikers. Um, they have various uh, reasons why they think this is true. One, many of them have to do with design. So they have, they believe that you can kind of design your way out of the violence of incarceration by um, painting cells in pastel colors or making sure they have natural light or making them slightly larger. And by the way, all of those arguments, larger cells, natural light, pastel colors, were part of the construction of Rikers. <laughs> um, and if you go to Rosie's, which is the women's jail on Rikers, which was built in 1988, um, it's painted like lavender. Oh, my God. That's the most infuriating technocratic liberal bullshit that I've ever heard in my life. I'm well, so mad. Let me, let me get a little bit more detail on that, because the pastel colors, is, that's, that's only like a hint of how ridiculous this is. Um, this, is a, this is from an essay by uh, Jared Shanahan and Zan, Zandar- friend of the show. <laughs> Zandarka Kurti, also a friend of the show. I just don't know how to pronounce her full name. Um, it's called Rebranding Mass Incarceration, the Lippmann Commission and Carceral Devolution in New York City. Uh, really great essay uh, about what we're talking about. And, and part of it, they describe um, this Lipman report, which is this report uh, commissioned to look into how to close Rikers, right? In uh, 2017, was it? And it says, the real star of the Lipman show, however, is the Justice Hub, the supposedly state-of-the-art jails slated to replace Rikers. Quote, the new jails should be integrated into their surrounding neighborhoods, the report argues, both in terms of design and uses. Benefits to communities such as a, such as new community meeting spaces and services or retail spaces for local businesses oh should be incorporated into each facility. In addition to advocating the integration of police and alternatives to our incarceration into the social fabric of the communities, the report proposes the physical integration of carceral space into neighborhoods with the use of snazzy high-rise jails meant to appear inoffensive and indigenous to a gentrified downtown area. These facilities will designate street-level space for neighbors to hold public events, do a little shopping, or pick up a latte on the ground floor of a building full of human cages. These are facilities meant to replace Rikers with one in each borough, totaling 5,000 beds. The Justice Hub. It's not a jail. It's a Justice Hub. Yeah, let's go surfing on Guantanamo Bay. It's lovely there this <laughs> time of year. And and also that's not new either, right? So when the city built new juvenile jails in the 1960s, this they called them remand shelters. And they explicitly said in those plans that calling them a shelter would... Um, you know, emphasize that these facilities were for the care and rehabilitation of youth, right? A shelter is a home, not a cage. So this strategy of uh, renaming institutions that continue to perpetuate the same violence also isn't new to the Lippmann Commission. It has a long history in jail reform. And Jared's 
piece brings up what I think is one of the most important parts of the plan, which is that the Whitman Commission, the mayor's office of criminal justice, the borough-based jails plan, they're being sold to gentrifiers, Mm -hmm. right? They're being sold to people who will never experience the violence of incarceration. And, and, They're being sold in order to make people feel comfortable and safe around state violence. Right. So if we if these are justice hubs, not cages. Right. Then liberals can feel good about living near them and not have to worry about the violence that's happening inside. And it's very clear in the kind of the city's uh, engagement with the public that they're primary audience for the plan is well-meaning liberals and gentrifiers, right? Not Mm -hmm. people who will be caged in these facilities. That's so fucking Orwellian. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, imagine going to like a a hipster food hall and there are people in just, you know, prison uniforms behind the counter working for 25 cents an hour or something, making your gourmet hot dog on a stick or whatever. Yeah, it's not, it's not a cage. It's just a home that you're not allowed to leave. Right. And and the only people who would be uh, feel safe or comfortable or OK with going to retail or other social services in the lobby of a jail are people who've never been incarcerated. Right. So it's very clear that this is a, a strategy of gentrification and a tactic of gentrification. So the neighborhoods where these jails are being proposed, downtown Brooklyn, already hyper gentrified, continuing to gentrify. Mott Haven, right, a neighborhood in the Bronx that's being targeted for redevelopment, Um, and Chinatown, which is experiencing a lot of demographic shifts. Um, So it's very clear for those reasons as well. And of course, the new borough of New York City, which will be Rikers Island. Exactly. I mean, that's a that's a big part of the coalition as well is real estate investment for Rikers Island. Do you want to talk a little bit about that? I mean, the real estate money is really hard to track and nefarious, Mm -hmm. right? And there are so many different. Rumors and proposals and ideas about what Rikers Island is going to be in the future when they've purportedly closed these jails, although I want to just keep emphasizing that there's no legally binding commitment to close Mm -hmm. Rikers. It's very clear um, if you look at the history of jail construction in New York that these decisions about where to site facilities like jails are primarily about real estate, right? So in the 1930s, when the city was um, selling Rikers to the public as a humanitarian rehabilitative model penitentiary in private the mayor and his commissioners were talking about how if we close down the workhouses that frees up valuable real estate for other purposes Mm -hmm. right and because rikers island named after a slave catcher right because rikers island was being um, built and constructed through rubble and landfill, there are these horrifying um, exchanges, uh, written exchanges between the mayor and the the, um, commissioner for corrections, in which the corrections commissioner says, from wasted land and wasted lives, a new rehabilitated future and promise for New York, right? That's how they're describing Rikers Island itself, both the land and the people as waste, Right. That needs to be transformed into something productive for New York City's future. And I have no doubt that the real estate interests are all up in this current plan in ways that probably won't even become apparent to us for until years down the line. Right. So as I understand it, no new jails um, was part of the coalition to close Rikers initially and then kind of branched off from it when it became clear that other members of the coalition were behind de Blasio's borough-based jails plan. Is, th- is that accurate? Like, how, how did this split happen? Yeah, so that's um, not quite what happened. Um, 
individual people in no new jails had had been members of close Rikers until close Rikers started to endorse the jail construction plan. Mm. But no new jails formed after or in the wake of the city announcing the plan to build new jails and close Rikers endorsement of that plan. Um, But many of us, including many of our lead organizers and many of our incarcerated members had been part of Close Rikers until close and, and just leadership USA, which is the national nonprofit of which Close Rikers is a part. So folks had been organizing with just leaders, um, JL USA and Close Rikers until they endorsed the plan and then people split, but no new jails had never been part of that coalition. I see. Yeah. Okay. Thanks for clearing that up. Um, so I was looking for some updates on what's going on with it now, and I saw that the Department of Corrections has been secretly moving people into Rikers. Um, what What's going on with that? Why are they doing that? Yeah, so we've been saying this for a year, um, more than a year, actually, for several years, that the Littman Commission and the mayor's plan have always involved moving people out of the existing borough-based jails. So that's the Brooklyn House of Detention, the Tombs, and the Boat, the Vernon C. Bain Center in the Bronx, onto Rikers, um, because the locations where they're going to build these new borough-based facilities are the same locations that the jails already exist in. So the plan has always involved moving people out of the existing borough-based jails onto Rikers to demolish those facilities and then build these new 50-story skyscraper jails. So while the city is saying Rikers is the worst jail, it's the most violent jail, it's the most toxic, degrading, dehumanizing, violent jail in the city, the plan has always involved moving people onto Rikers for years, right? The new jails will take years to construct. Um, You know as well as all New Yorkers know that Construction plans never go according to schedule, right? So the plan has always involved um, this kind of uh, transfer of incarcerated people into these jails that the city is simultaneously saying are so bad um, that no other jail compares. So what we found out, though, is that even though um, the demolition of the current borough-based facilities, so the Brooklyn Detention Complex in particular, isn't slated to begin until 2021, um, the, de- the Department of Corrections has been moving people out of the Brooklyn detention complex into Rikers. And it seems like they're moving forward on plans to in- empty the Brooklyn detention complex entirely by November 1st. Um, so that's the, the plan hasn't even been approved by city council yet. That's years ahead of schedule in terms of when they would actually need to empty out that facility in order to demolish it. And in the meantime, they're going to be exposing incarcerated people to all of the violence that, you know, on on Rikers. Um, and no jails exposed this and uh, through various family members telling us that their loved ones had been moved onto Rikers from the Brooklyn detention complex. And we um, came to city our city council members with that information. And their response was, If the DOC is doing that, if the Department of Correction is doing that, they haven't told us, which just illuminates further how the Department of Correction is completely non-transparent, can't be overseen. The Brooklyn Detention Complex is is a borough-based facility in a residential neighborhood. Council member Stephen Levin's office is literally across the street. And one of the big arguments for building these new borough-based jails is that because they're in neighborhoods, some because they're in neighborhoods, 
somehow they'll be easier to oversee. People on the outside will have a better sense of what's going on on the inside. Well, here's a jail in your district, literally across the street from your office, and you have no idea what's going on in there. And when we tell you, because we talk to people on the inside, you're like, oh, the Department of Correction just didn't tell us. And that's supposed to be a sufficient answer. Jesus Christ. Yeah. I think when people start to realize how um, not corrupt, but just totally uh, incommensurate with any sense of justice the justice system and the carceral system is um they just realize we can't be building new jails we can't alter uh the way jails function we have to think about decarcerating or even abolishing the prison system and i think that's why the notion of abolishing prison has become so popular not just on the left but just you know it's become a almost a matter of consensus across the political spectrum that we have to get the millions of people in this country who are in prison or on parole out of that system. Um, and that creates a major conflict with the institutions of the justice system, uh, like prison guard unions, for example, mm. or, uh, you know, private prisons um, who are, you know, heavily invested in making sure things continue the way they are. And I think that's where you get this kind of weird liberal compromise of like, yes, we're going to close this bad prison and we're going to get, a lot of nice prisons. Um, so uh, how do you see, uh, but at the same time, prison abolition to a lot of people seems like too far. Uh, so w w in your mind, what is prison abolition? Do you consider yourself an abolitionist? And how do you interact with, uh, you know, decarceration, which isn't necessarily abolition? Yeah, so No New Jails is an explicitly a prison and police abolitionist coalition. Um, we absolutely believe and are fighting for and are organizing towards a world without jails, police, prisons, and other places of involuntary confinement. So that would include locked mental institutions, the concentration camps at the border, right? We want to abolish them all. Um, it's really important for us that uh, we recognize and acknowledge that the prison industrial complex has its origins in and functions to maintain racial capitalism, right? White supremacy, heteropatriarchy, and class domination. And you cannot disentangle the function of the prison from those um, modes and uh, that organization of power and social control and oppression. So we begin from that premise, from that understanding that prisons aren't actually about public safety. They aren't about security. They aren't about community well-being. They're about maintaining race, class, and gender domination. And when you begin from that perspective, right, and you understand that the movement to abolish prisons and police and jails has its origins in the movement to abolish slavery, right, that opens up different ways of thinking about the problem of incarceration, right? It's not just a problem of mass incarceration. It's a problem of incarceration itself. Um, so I think we draw, it's really important to recognize that contemporary abolitionist movements draw their inspiration from that analysis, from that ana that Marxist analysis of racial capitalism, right? That um, prisons and police function to maintain white supremacy and class domination primarily. Their, and their origins are, like the origins of the police are very explicitly in slave patrol, patrols, in the Pinkerton thugs, right? Which were a private security force that capitalists used to, union bust and continue to be and exactly yes um 
and uh, settler colonialism, right? So recognizing that. And then the other thing that we um, recognize and and organize around and try to um, make very clear is that every effort to reform or rehabilitate jails and prisons, whether that's 100 years ago or today, has ultimately failed to make those institutions more humane, more dignified, more um, rehabilitative, because the primary function of these institutions of carceral control is domination and punishment. And you can't reform an institution that's meant to punish. Right. And there are like Rikers is an example of the how you can't reform those institutions, but also the transgender housing unit, which is a housing unit for trans women on Rosie's is one of these reforms. Right. That's meant to make jails and prisons safer for trans and gender nonconforming people. Well, Laylene Polanco died in the THU. Right. Many of our incarcerated members are trans women who are incarcerated in men's prisons upstate. And the way that the um, carceral system deals with their safety is by putting them in solitary confinement. So by torturing them. Mm. Right. So we recognize over and again, and I can give more examples, right, of how these efforts to to change those institutions ultimately fail because the primary purpose of the institution isn't to rehabilitate. It's to punish, stigmatize and warehouse undesirable oppressed communities. So you've written a really detailed plan for how to reduce New York's prison population, because I think when most people hear abolish prisons, close Rikers, they're like, well, what are you going to do instead? You're just going to let all the prisoners out of jail and let them run free over the city. Like and, and, uh, you know, it's a very basic question that might come from a place of ignorance. But um, I really like how you guys laid out the ways that we could be using this, I think, $11 billion that is going to be spent on new jails now to uh, just help people out in other ways. Um, So can you go over some of what's in there, how you're going to reduce the prison population? um, And where where are these people going to go? Yeah, absolutely. It's a great question. So it's really important to recognize that um, New York City incarcerates about 7,000 people per day or 40,000 people per year. Our city jails in New York primarily um, detain people pre-trial. So those are folks who are waiting to either have the charges against them dismissed, which is actually the most common outcome for a criminal case in New York City, or take their case to trial. Right. Seven out of 10 people in New York City jails right now are awaiting trial and have not been convicted of anything. So one of the most important um, components of our our plan to shut down Rikers is that we believe that New York City should end pretrial detention. So not just end cash bail, but end pretrial detention and allow people to fight their cases from home. And there's 50 years, 60 years really of data showing that people come to court when you when you let them defend themselves from home when you're supporting them in their communities right there's there's no evidence that um, people need to be detained pre-trial in order to come back to court. But pre-trial detention, the origins of bail and pre-trial detention are primarily in coercing people to come back to court, right? And the New York State bail law, in fact, the current bail law, not the one that was recently passed, but the one that was passed in 1970, was passed in order to provide what the law said was a broad presumption for pre-trial release, right? So 
most of the people in New York City jails are just awaiting trial and should be allowed to await trial from home um, and should be provided the resources they need in their communities and families and neighborhoods in order to make it back to court and deal with whatever interpersonal conflicts may have led them to get caught up in, in the criminalizing system to begin with. Um, so that's one of the m most important components of our plan. I also think it's really important to recognize that, um, like I was saying a minute ago, so if you're charged with a felony, which we would consider, or, you know, the average person would consider to be a serious crime if you were charged with a felony in New York, you have a 50% chance of those charges against you being dismissed outright, right? Mm -hmm. Not converted to a lower level charge, not a plea, but just dismissed outright. So many of the people or most of the people who are getting caught up in these criminalizing systems haven't actually caused interpersonal harm, mm -hmm. right? Aren't responsible for whatever the DA and the police are saying they did and are just getting punished because they're black, brown, working class immigrants, TGNC folks, right? And who are hyper-policed and hyper-criminalized. At the same time, right, the NYPD does a horrible job of actually, I mean, police in general don't prevent crime. Right. That's like a myth about what police do. They don't interrupt crime. They don't prevent crime. And according to the NYPD's own statistics, they solve, for example, less than 30 percent of rapes and sexual assaults. They solve around 70 percent of murders. Right. So if we think that police are actually doing something to reduce interpersonal violence in our communities, they're not. But what they are doing is criminalizing people who uh you know, they think are criminals and our assumption about who a criminal is, is obviously based on white supremacy. I think you're being unfair to the police because, <laughs> you know, they they may interrupt a crime by accident by, you know, they just happen to trip into someone committing a crime and they like take the donut out of their mouth and say, hey, stop that. No, that's fair. I like the statistics that you all include in there, too, because like I, I didn't know some of this. Like it sounds sort of counterintuitive at first. Um, when you say policing actually makes us less safe and then there are case studies in there to say as if to say like, oh, you don't believe me. Here are a bunch of examples and here are a bunch of numbers. Um, do you want to tell us about some of those? Yeah, absolutely. So um, the NYPD in the past couple of years has pitched a some hissy fits, right? And decided that they were going to stop doing what they call proactive policing, which the rest of us would call broken windows policing. Broken windows policing is this kind of low level misdemeanor policing where cops are patrolling neighborhoods and stopping people for... Um, they're looking for anarchists who are smashing windows to stop. <laughs> They're mostly just stopping and harassing black and brown youth, right, for for charges ranging from made up things like trespassing to, you know, marijuana possession. Right. And but the theory of broken windows policing, which has been thoroughly debunked, is that if you penalize and criminalize um, these kind of low-level, quote-unquote, antisocial behaviors, you can stop higher-level interpersonal violence from happening. It's been, it's not true, like, as in terms of a theory of policing, but it has a lot of sway in how New York City polices communities of color. So in the past couple of years, the NYPD has stopped doing that proactive policing because mm -hmm. they've, they're, you know, throwing fits about de Blasio or fits about, um, uh, Pantaleo being fired, right? And what we see is when the when the NYPD leaves people alone, right? Neighborhoods get less violent because the NYPD increases violence, stress, and interpersonal 
anger in communities that are being constantly surveilled, constantly harassed, and having their neighbors, loved ones, friends, family members being torn from them, right, by a, essentially an occupying army. Um, so this has happened twice in the past couple of years in New York City, and both times the NYPD has kind of backed away from this broken windows policing. It's not just that the rate of arrest for misdemeanors goes down, but the rate of arrest for more serious interpersonal violence goes down as well. Right. That's really amazing. Um, I also read the case study in where was it? Cincinnati. Cincinnati. Yeah. Where um, I think it was arrests, arrests stopped and it made everything better. Yeah, jails closed. I forget which. Yeah. So Cincinnati was facing a fiscal crisis and they decided to close one of their jails. Right. So not out of any kind of like abolitionist understanding that jails cause harm, but just because they didn't have enough money to keep the jail open. And so they closed the jail, the Queen's Gate, Queen's Gate jail. And when they closed the jail, the rate of both low level and high level quote unquote crimes went down in Cincinnati. And there's kind of there's maybe five decades of data that show that jails and police increase violence, right? And much of that data, especially around jailing, is um, framed around recidivism, right? And what people like to call the quote-unquote criminogenic effect of incarceration. So I like to stay away from that language because it's really, it's penal language, right? It's language that assumes that people who are being caught in these criminalizing systems, um, are playing some part in their criminalization. And so I like to avoid that language. But what that data does show is that being exposed to the violence, isolation, degradation, and stigmatization of jail causes trauma, right? The kind of trauma that it causes trauma and reduces people's other social relationships. You, you know, spending a night in jail can cause you to lose your house, your family, your children, your job, right? And so when you, when you expose people to all of those kinds of harms, and then you release them back into their community without support, without, a, without prospects for a job, with family relationships and housing that has been disrupted, what do you expect other than more disruption and trauma, right? People go into jail traumatized and they leave more traumatized. And so that example from Cincinnati shows that if you close a jail and let people remain in communities, right, communities are safer. Uh, yeah, going back to the the Shanahan and uh, Curti article, um, they, they cite a 2018 Vera Institute for Justice uh, essay that says there's four trends as the support for mass incarceration decreases uh, decarceration um, stagnation uh, prisons to jails and the continued uh, and continued incarceration growth I guess that's like the extreme reactionary position um, but in New York City the jail population has decreased about 55 percent over the last I don't know decade or two decades um, so uh, so Generally speaking, people are getting used to this idea that we can change the jail or prison situation, at least within the confines of New York City. And Close Rikers was kind of this unifying moment of that where you had um, basically everybody on the same page. Uh, since then, there's been different visions of how to do this. And one thing that No New Jails does is, is constantly goes to these community board meetings where these new jails are being discussed and debated. Um, so 
may, maybe you can describe a little bit of, of that kind of on the ground work um, and, and what kind of discussions you have, what kind of allies and opponents you find in those situations. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the things that's going on right now in New York City, right, is there's this um, unified land use re- review process through which the city is going to approve or reject the construction of these new jails. And it's really wild and it's worth pausing around um, this component, which is that this is a land use review process. So these decisions about whether or not to cage generations of primarily black and brown working class New Yorkers are being decided on technical merits of land use. Right. And so you go we've been going to these hearings in which the primary discussion, especially from the mayor's office and his representatives, is around things like shadows and parking and whether or not the jail construction process is going to disrupt traffic flows. Right. Um, And it's nightmarish to be in these spaces and hear people talk about cages where people are going to be tortured, disappeared and murdered as questions about how high the buildings are going to be and whether or not they fit with the neighborhood character. Mainly Tribeca, right? Or is this the same case everywhere? It's the same case everywhere. Okay. Yeah. Um, And different neighborhoods have different not-in-my-backyard concerns about the jail construction, right? Mm -hmm. So we've been intervening in this land use review process not only to emphasize that the city can close Rikers now without building new jails, but also to emphasize that these questions aren't land use questions. They're questions about humans and communities that are going to affect generations of New Yorkers. And it's important to recognize, too, that... The city thinks that within a couple years, we can get down to an average j- daily jail population of about 4,000 people. Without Rikers, we have capacity to incarcerate 2,800 people per day. So the city wants to spend $11 billion to build four new jails because they can't figure out how to incarcerate 1,000 fewer people per day. That's really the position they're taking. Wow. Just re- that's a million dollars per cage. Right. That's it's an absurd position. So when we go to these when we go into these hearings, right, we're encountering not only the absurdity of the state's position and their insistence that this needs to be framed as a technical question about land use rather than a question of like racial justice. We're also encountering uh, NIMBYs, not in my backyard folks, right, who don't really care about incarceration but don't want their neighborhood disrupted. Mm -hmm. We're encountering um, white supremacists who chant things like keep Rikers open, lock them up, Um, and advocates who sincerely or not believe the state's line, which is that in order to close Rikers, we have to build these new jails. That's a false choice, right? But there are folks who seem to agree that that's true um and and folks who are using um rehabilitation and reform um to talk about these new facilities as though they don't know or think that we've overcome the history of failed jail reform um and it's hard it's like there are a lot of different moving parts when we're intervening in those conversations and i also get the sense that uh, you know, although so much of the no new jail struggle has been focused on these community board meetings, it might all be a facade, right? Like the city's just going to do what it wants to do. So what, what do you think um, 
uh, th that experience of intervening in these community board meetings has revealed about the way New York City is structured and the way the well-meaning liberal representatives like Bill de Blasio and Corey Johnson uh, uh, really think of, the, of New York City as a democratic participatory city. No, they're thugs. They just want to throw their weight around and get other people to fall in line with whatever bull... Sorry, can I swear? You may swear Especially as much about as Corey Johnson. Okay, great. Bullshit <laughs> plans that they have, right? And the, the, the community part participation elements of this land use review proceeding have been a total sham. Um, the city has invited, has had closed door meetings with what they're calling neighborhood advisory councils that mm -hmm. are comprised entirely of people that they invite, mm -hmm. right? Are closed to community, are closed to people who oppose the jail construction plan. All of the people who have consulted on the jail construction plan are members of either philanthropic inst philanthropic institutions or nonprofits who are very heavily embedded in the prison industrial complex in New York City. So nonprofits that fund these uh, sorry, philanthropic institutions that fund these nonprofits to do things like provide reentry services. And that's passing for community engagement on the jails construction plan. Can we name some names here? Um, yeah, sure. The Osborne Society, the Fortune Society, Catal, they all have not only nonprofit money, right? They have city contracts to provide reentry services. So, I'm sure you both know, and I'm sure many of your listeners know, that private prisons make up a very small minority, very, very small minority of prisons and jails in the United States. However, nonprofits and private corporations are parasitic on the public jail infrastructure, right? So if you are cycling 40,000 people per year through your jails, and then you have a bunch of nonprofits who exist in order to provide reentry services to those 40,000 people and are getting multi-million dollar contracts from the city to provide those reentry services. They don't really have much interest in abolition, right? But what they do have an interest in is continuing to be able to provide those purportedly rehabilitative services to people who are incarcerated, God. right? Yeah. I mean, the, the enormous amount of money involved, like you always got to follow the money, right? It makes total sense that these nonprofits, which are typically seen as good by the average liberal, you know, they're doing good things for people, have a vested interest in continuing this system, which nobody even seems to question. And like the, the amount of money wasted on this, like, I don't think that money should be the primary consideration for any of this stuff. Like, Oh, if it costs more money to not put people in cages, uh, should we should we give up on that? No, but like it, it's really made stark in um, the document, the report that you guys produced, like for just a tiny fraction of the money that's being paid out to these contractors or that's being spent on new jail construction, um, we could have. We could invest in education. We could invest in um, harm reduction programs for drugs. Um, we could even just give people money, right? Like the bail voucher system, which maybe we want to talk about a little bit. It makes so much more sense and it saves money. Like, why would we not do that? Yeah, and it's really um, the kind of following the money is so important, including New York City in order to pay for these jails is going to be issuing bonds. 
right? So the $11 billion that it's going to cost to construct the jails over the next 10 years, are, that money is going to be raised through issuing NYC bonds that they're going to sell to people who wittingly or unwittingly are going to be participating in the financing of jails and yeah, of jails in New York City, which is really grotesque as well. They had been calling these bonds social investment bonds, just in another kind of Orwellian. Yeah. yeah. So I found the bail voucher idea really interesting because, uh, like, I had never thought of it before in quite those terms, but it makes so much sense where the city would give people uh, these bail vouchers that they use to pay their bail with if they can't afford it. And then they show up and the money is just given back to them so that they can help support their families and themselves while they're going through this kind of crisis. Do you want to explain that a little bit? Yeah, so currently under New York state law, there are nine categories of bail that judges can set. Most of them don't actually involve putting up any money up front, right? So you can get a non-collateral or unsecured bond um, and be released. And then if you come back to court in New York City, you won't owe any money, right? So judges actually have a lot of options um, to release people pre-trial, not set bail, and allow people to defend their cases from home. Judges are unwilling to do that in part because bail and pretrial detention function to coerce people into taking guilty pleas, right? And there's a massive case backlog in New York City. So, for example, there are 10,000 pending felony trials in New York City in any given year and only space for 600 trials, right? And so that difference has to be mediated somehow, and it's currently being mediated by coercing people into taking guilty pleas by detaining them pre-trial. But if the city were actually serious about decarceration, there are a lot of things that we could do. One of them is that judges could just release people on their own recognizance so that they can go home and fight their case from home. But another, um, another idea that no new jails had, which would be easy to implement, would be this city-run bail fund, right, which would cost about $200 million a year. And if you were a low-income New Yorker facing uh, criminal charges in court in New York City and had bail set on you by a judge, you could go to a Human Rights Administration office, you or your lawyer or family member, with you know, documentation around your income and documentation around the bail that the judge had set. And the city could just give you that money that you could pay and your family member could be released so that they could defend their case from home. Right. There are just so many different ways that if the city were interested in um, freeing people, that it could free people. And the bail voucher is, is one mechanism that um, would also have this benefit of then uh, bringing more resources into communities that are being currently criminalized and punished by the legal system, right? So it would, in an interesting way, function almost as a form of reparations, right? Like the state is criminalizing you, disrupting your life, disrupting your social relations, forcing you to come to court every single week. Um, it's hard to overstate the kind of toll on people that um, fighting cases takes. And, and that money, when returned to communities could actually ameliorate some of those harms. Because another thing that we see, right, is that working class people, um, working class people of color, when they pay bail, when they pay fines and fees associated with criminal courts, it's a massive transfer of wealth from working class people to the state, right? And so this, the bail voucher program would also alleviate some of that, that problem of the criminalizing system as just extracting wealth from working class communities. Like it, it makes so much sense because so much crime is driven by poverty and inequality that making people poorer 
isn't going to do anything to solve the problem. It's purely a cruel, punitive measure. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of the things that um, many of our prison abolitionist leaders like Mariam Kaba remind us of, right, is that safe communities don't have more police and they don't have more people going to jail and prison. Safe communities have more resources, right, and are given the space and latitude to work out interpersonal harm themselves without state intervention, yet we don't allow the same um, kind of space for self-determination and autonomy to working class communities of color. Uh, You write in this, um, what do I call it, a document, a plan? Both, great. Yeah. Um, You write in this plan that we cannot use the electoral system to address these needs that we have. But um, I know there's been a big push lately on the part of some people in DSA in particular to run sort of socialist candidates for DAs, and there's even some talk of judges. I know that um, the Tiffany Caban campaign was very much a platform of decarceration and that she supported a lot of the same things that you guys support. Um, And she even came around uh, and supported No New Jails uh, after some DSA members pressured her to do so because she was a candidate endorsed by the DSA. Um, We've seen Krasner in Philadelphia uh, greatly reduce the prison population using his discretion as DA. Um, What's your view on the Caban campaign and the idea of running socialists for DA more generally? Um, Can that kind of strategy ever fit into an abolitionist framework as a more short-term action to decarcerate people? Um, And if not, what kinds of tactics do you recommend instead? Yeah, so first I want to acknowledge that there's a wide diversity of opinions within No New Jails on um, so-called progressive DAs or decarcerative DAs running campaigns. No New Jails doesn't endorse DAs. We don't endorse politicians. That's like not our strategy. Um, I would... I would person so I'm I'll speak as myself now. Um I don't understand the term socialist DA. To me it sounds like an oxymoron. DAs are cops, all DAs are cops. There are no good cops. Uh so there are no good DAs. I think DAs can run on decarceration platforms and then it's our um duty as abolitionist organizers and abolitionist activists to hold DAs to the promises that they're making to decarcerate and to demand that they make their not only make promises, but then follow through on their promises and when they don't vote them out. And I think we can, the only relationship we can really have to them is an adversarial one. And I can um, specify what I think some of those demands that organizers should make on DAs are. Um, I also just want to say that district attorneys work for the cops. They work for the state. They don't work for the people. Um, It's a kind of foundational myth of our justice system that um, DAs represent the people. And that's what they say in court, right? They say their name and then they say for the people. And it's really important that we continue to emphasize that DAs work for cops. They work for private property. They work for the owning class. They don't work for us. Um, And their function within the system is such that they can't, right? So you could have an individual DA that is a little bit better than another individual DA, but just like you can have one cop that's a little bit better than the cop, that doesn't mean the police shouldn't be abolished. So personally, um, as an abolitionist, I believe that we shouldn't only abolish prisons and jails and um, police. We should also abolish penal law, right? And if you abolish penal law, there's no role for the district attorney. However, 
I think there are some some promises that DAs could make that organizers would want to hold them to. So those promises include things like refusing or declining to prosecute cases when there's no evidence or weak evidence. In New York, we have an epidemic of cops lying on the stand. It's so common they call it test-a-lying. And DAs keep lists of cops who have been known to lie on the stand and yet continue to prosecute cases in which those cops are the only witnesses to the purported crime, right? So DAs could publish those lists and decline to prosecute cases in which those cops are testifying. They could promise to to always seek non-carceral alternatives to cases, right? Only seek the minimum in terms of sentencing, not oppose clemency or parole hearings, right? So when people are trying to get out of prison, promise to never um, oppose those petitions. Uh, DAs um, could promise to um, redistribute the wealth that they've currently seized through civil forfeitures through a participatory budgeting process. Right. I I mean, I think decline to prosecute is probably the most important thing that they could do. So not only on a range of kind of obvious cases, but on more difficult cases too, decline to prosecute them and listen to survivors of violence who are asking for alternatives, who are asking for non-carceral, non-punitive alternative resolutions to their cases. Um, And finally, DAs who are running on progressive platforms should work to shrink the size of their workforce. Right. Fire their ADA's assistant district attorneys who aren't following their directives um, and generally work to make their offices smaller while advocating for public defenders resources to be increased. Yeah. I, I mean, I can kind of see it from both sides here because DA's have so much power and so much discretion. Um, it makes sense. And, and these are things that can be done immediately. It makes sense that people would want to have some energy or some optimism behind it when someone like Tiffany Caban is running and promising to uh, decriminalize sex work and all of the misdemeanors and things that cops use to harass poor people with and use the power of the state to go after bosses and landlords. That seems like something we could do right now. Um, But in terms of the long, the long view, um, it's obviously not going to do it for us and i almost feel like an asshole when i rain up people's parade about that but like i feel like we can have some short-term stuff that people are doing at the same time that we keep our eyes on this horizon of abolition absolutely and and the the abolitionist movement needs a diversity of tactics and people who have energy for different kinds of work right and i think that's really important that people feel like they can plug in where they can make a contribution also, just from my own experience of sitting in criminal court, though, and watching public defenders collude with the prosecution, it's hard for me to imagine the prosecution ever really playing an abolitionist role in in that kind of carceral space, which isn't to say, though, that people shouldn't be watching their DAs and putting pressure on them and holding DAs who are running on these platforms to their campaign commitments. Yeah, fair enough. So um, I attended a community board meeting recently in my district and um, I witnessed firsthand like the cops were there and people were asking them questions and like a lot of people in these communities, especially older people, um, older people of color, uh, they want the cops around to keep them safe and they think that that's going to 
like there's a real demand for that and they want to work with them. So um, how, how do you interface with that sort of desire that exists in communities and what's your alternate model of justice in dealing with harm that's committed? Yeah, that's a great question. I think it's um, people want to live in safe neighborhoods. We all want safety. We all want to feel secure in the places where we spend our time, where our loved ones spend their time, where our children um, and relatives spend their time, right? So safety is something that concerns us all. In many working class communities of color that have been um, not only oppressed for generations, but divested from for generations, policing is the only thing that's remained, right? So police become the sole solution to a wide range of interpersonal conflict. And people feel like they don't have any other answers or any other access to alternatives, right? And including alternatives like poverty reduction, which we know reduces interpersonal violence, right? So when police... I mean, and you can see this, especially starting in the 1970s with the fiscal crisis in New York, right? Social, pro social programs are progressively withdrawn from working class communities, working class communities of color. They're also withdrawn in order to punish working class communities for participating in liberation struggles, right? And uprisings. And the punitive state inter intercedes more and more and more into neighborhoods and, until policing becomes the only response to a ver wide variety of social problems. And that experience for all of us um, changes how we understand what safety could mean and what we can ask for, right, and what alternatives could be. So one of the um, big components of the No New Jails Abolition Plan is inviting community members into community with us to reimagine and re-envision safety. And train e each other and train ourselves in different ways of intervening in interpersonal harm so that we don't have to rely on the state. And it's also important to recognize that people rely on the state even when they know that or when they rely on the police, even when they know that that's dangerous and could cause harm. Right. And so it's not people are caught. They're trapped by a punitive system and trapped by a lack of access to resources um, and recognize that other solutions would be better, but don't know how to move with that. And so a lot of our plan discusses lessons that we've learned over the past year in terms of bailing people out, supporting people in court, supporting people with commissary payments, right? The lessons that we've learned about community safety um, and asking people to join with us in that. So there's elements of that plan that are about kind of preventing interpersonal violence. And then there are elements of that that are about restoring communities after interpersonal violence has occurred. And there are many models for both. And many and many of those models have a better evidence base behind them than policing and jailing. Right. So there's pretty much no evidence that policing reduces interpersonal violence. And there's certainly evidence that shows that jailing increases interpersonal violence. Meanwhile, the Cure Violence Program in New York, which is meant to prevent interpersonal violence, has like a huge evidence base behind it. Yeah. How does that work exactly? Because I was going to ask you um, how ha has have these transformative justice models been tried in the past and how have they gone? I mean, they're they're. They're being tried all over in many different ways. In New York City, there are a couple programs that are um, funded by the city. And then so because they're funded by the city, um, they're, Columbia does um, data analysis on them. Right. So I want to I want to be really clear that 
trans many transformative justice and community accountability processes are happening so far outside the state, we're not witnessing them, right? Because they're happening in communities with trained facilitators, with people who've been doing community accountability processes for years, and we don't have access to them, and nor should we, right? Um, because they're really um, about removing respond, uh, removing how communities respond to harm from the eyes of the state. But in New York City, there are programs that have an affiliation with the state. So Common Justice is one of them. It's a, a restorative justice program for people accused of serious interpersonal harm, so violence, um, that has a 90% success rate. So people get their cases diverted out of criminal court into a restorative justice process that takes several years in which the person who caused the harm and the person who survived the harm meet with support groups, um, meet with therapists, meet and ultimately meet with each other and figure out alternative ways of repairing the harm that was caused. And unlike jails and prisons, um, the common justice program has like all of this evidence behind it that shows that it reduces interpersonal harm. So that's one one model for addressing harm that's already occurred. The Cure Violence Program is a separate model for preventing interpersonal harm. And the Cure Violence Programs, of which there are quite a few in New York, and I will say that some of them partner with the police, right? So they're not entirely abolitionist. But they employ um, what people in the field call credible messengers, right? Or people who've experienced interpersonal violence or have caused interpersonal violence to go into communities and, and talk to people about alternative ways to resolve conflict, Right. And so instead of relying on like an occupying force like the NYPD to re reduce violence in neighborhoods, the Cure Violence Program relies on community members and community knowledge that um, most violence is lateral. Right. So we mostly harm people close to us. And in doing so, we're harming ourselves and our entire communities. And so that's a very different model for reducing violence than policing, which is a top-down oppressive model for reducing, for reducing violence that doesn't even work. Absolutely. So <clears throat> here at the Antifado, we like to think about our socialist horizon and um, prison abolition fits into that, obviously. Um, I think some people are still going to have trouble with it in that context, um, asking if prison abolition means that no one should ever be detained against their will in the socialist future um, and, and how that's going to work. Like, I know uh, some people made some noise at the Marxist Center conference recently on the question of, oh, how are we going to contain the counter-revolution if we don't have jails? We need gulags or whatever. Like, I, I don't know. You don't, do you, have an, you don't have to have an opinion on that, but uh, I feel like you might. Sure. Um, so I want to uh, my first response to questions like that is always we don't need to envision a future without interpersonal harm to envision a future without prisons and jails. Right. Me we need to merely acknowledge that the harms of incarceration are ongoing, specific and concrete and significant enough that we need to end them. Right. So people often like to trade some um, future vulnerability, right? What if I get hurt in the future, some abstract vulnerability against these concrete harms of incarceration? And I'm saying we need to stop doing that, right? So we don't have to imagine a future without harm to recognize that prisons and jails are massive institutions of violence and we need to end them. So that's my, like my first answer to these questions about the future, 
right? My second answer would be that for many prison abolitionists and people who work in transformative justice and community accountability, we work really hard to distinguish between punishment and consequences, right? So there ought to be consequences for causing harm, including um, the kind of massive harm that capitalists cause, right? There should be consequences for that. Um, That doesn't mean that we need to... um, quarantine, banish, and isolate people in prisons in order for people to be accountable to the harms that they've caused. So I have a hard time of thinking past the socialist revolution. Um, And I think it's really important that we stay grounded in, in the present and recognizing that like jails and prisons just perpetuate white supremacy, just perpetuate heteropatriarchy, just perpetuate sexual violence and need to be abolished for those reasons. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think it was tough for some people to listen to that when they're like on the ground every day working in a context that uh, maybe doesn't have that much to do with suppressing the capitalists and the counter revolution. Like, I feel like maybe we can cross that bridge when we come to it. I don't want to sound like a bad revolutionary Marxist, but yeah, I mean, I think also prisons and police haven't existed forever. Right. And prisons and police originate with capitalism. So I would imagine that in a in a some kind of post-capitalist future, we would have other mechanisms for addressing harm. Right. It's not like prisons and, and policing and jails exist independent of their function under racial capitalism. They're integral to that function. So in terms of like crossing that bridge when we get there, yes. And history teaches us that penal institutions emerge with the formation of capitalist states, like with the formation of private property, with the formation of class exploitation, with the formation of slavery, and aren't independent from it. So when we abolish those other institutions of domination in our socialist future, it's like... And that's when we can finally actually talk about justice, because we have a justice system that does it's not about justice. Absolutely. So these, these kind of questions... They, yeah, we do kind of, and it's important to think about, but in the sense we have to leave it uh, to the future. Um, so in terms of your campaign, I know there's a city council vote coming up. Um, why don't we talk a little bit about what listeners in the New York area can do to support No New Jails? And then we'll talk about, in general, how we can support prison abolition around the, the country. Absolutely. So if you're in the New York area, this is a crucial time to get involved in the fight to get city council to vote against the jail construction plan. There are many ways of doing that. My first recommendation would be to follow us on social media. Um, Our handle is no new jails underscore NYC on both Twitter and Instagram. And if you follow us on social media and sign up for our email listserv, which you can sign up for on our website, nonewjails.nyc, you can get immediate updates on ways to get involved in the campaign, whether that's calling your city council representatives and asking them to vote no, coming out to rallies. We're, we're rallying every week or every couple days at this point, and we always need more folks showing up for things like that, writing letters to city council, et cetera, et cetera. So you can find ways of getting involved in those immediate um, activities by going to our website. Um, Another thing that we would encourage everyone to do, no matter where you are, is read our Close Rikers Now, We Keep Us Safe plan. This is the plan to shut down Rikers without building new jails. You can download that on our website, and there's a place on the website for community feedback. 
So especially if you're not in New York City, we would love it if you got together with an abolitionist study circle or teach-in, went through the plan, thought about how it applied to your circumstances, if you would have any additions or changes, um, lessons learned from your abolitionist fights in your communities, and then give us that feedback, and we're going to release a second edition of the plan with more of that um, information from all of you. We really view this plan as an invitation into abolition and want to hear what everyone thinks about it. Um, we also publish a zine that we send to incarcerated organizers who are members of the No New Jails campaign. So if you or your or a friend or a loved one is in, is currently incarcerated and would like to be added to our mailing list, um, that would be an amazing way for you to get in touch with us and keep organizing with us. And I would say uh, outside of New York or um, where, wherever you are, uh, it's really important to just remember that there are a lot of people in prison or in the carceral system in terms of probation or what have you. And uh, a good way to remember that is just to build a relationship with incarcerated people. The easiest thing to do is just write them letters, you know, it, just writing letters about your day or what you're thinking about. I mean, this can help take somebody out of prison for just a second that they read the letter uh, where they're, you know, otherwise completely lonely. Um, and also you can form relationships with people who are family members of people who are incar incarcerated. Uh, you can see if there's a Books Through Bars chapter near you a uh, or an organization that supports political prisoners like New York City uh, Anarchist Black Cross. It's like a part of a federation around the country. Black and Pink supports queer prisoners and puts out a really good newspaper with uh, stuff written by queer prisoners. Um, and Maybe you have some recommendations of other struggles like this around the country or other abolitionist groups that people can uh, take a look out for. Yeah, absolutely. So there, I think, according to our most recent count, 83 jail fights going on across the country right now. So mm. 83 different counties that are planning to or in the stages of constructing new jails. And in every single place where that's happening, we need to be showing up and saying no. So the ones that I can think of off the top of my head are there's, they're planning, uh, Detroit is planning to build a new juvenile jail. And the, the fight in Detroit is really wild. They have, um, on average, 2000 youth incarcerated every day, and they want to build a new youth juvenile jail that they're calling a justice hub that has capacity to incarcerate 7,000 people per day. That's a lot of justice. Yeah, exactly. Um, so they're planning on expanding their capacity, like tripling their, their capacity to incarcerate youth. So Detroit is a really big place where that fight is ongoing. Um, Atlanta just won a huge fight. They got uh, people in Atlanta got the city to shut down um, a jail there, and now they're in the planning stages for what they want that space to become. Similarly, um, in LA, they just got the Board of Supervisors to vote against building a new quote-unquote mental health jail. But now the, the LA Board of Supervisors has these billions of dollars to create a network of mental health facilities, and so activists are still really pushing to be included in envisioning what those alternatives will look like. New Orleans has a jail fight going on right now. There's been in um, New Orleans a kind of overflow jail that's been open for 15 years that folks are trying to get shut down. And then in Massachusetts, um, the uh, one of the counties in Massachusetts is uh, planning to open a new women's jail. And again, they're calling it a justice hub. And so there's a fight around that jail there. So those are all different places to get involved and many other counties as well that are escaping me at the moment. Yeah. 
awesome. Everyone should get involved who's interested in this stuff. I know from personal experience, uh, everyone I know who's involved in No New Jails is very tired most of the time, so they could really use some extra hands on deck. Yeah, absolutely. This is an all hands on deck moment for No New Jails. Thank you for that. All right, here we go. Here we go. Hate is temporary, love is necessary. I went from eating chicken to eating commissary. Damn, I am as sick as I need therapy. You can buy the answer, but you can't afford to question me. First off, I don't need you second guessing me. Jail is like third base, I'm coming home eventually. Still got shooters, like hot tubs. Man, I'm anemic, still got blood. I'm in my cell, read fan mail. Wish I was in Amsterdam, sipping Amstel. Thinking about all of that pussy I can't smell. Man, they did me wrong, I feel like Nelson Mandel. Ugh, I shine too hard, my lamp fell. But my name's still ringing Alexander Graham Bell. I know you met damn, cause you know damn well that I still got you open, open like a clamshell. Yeah. Still fly on my hawk shit. My conversation sinks cause I talk shit. Stay in your lane, you on that double talk shit. We eating at the top, get a spoon and a fork lift. I got wrapped, wrapped up like a gift. And I'd be sober if gift was a fifth. I'm feeling like Elvis, jailhouse rock. I'm not Tupac, I'm the new pot. Behind bars, but the bars don't stop. Recording over the phone, hope the call don't drop. Drizzy got the ball, I know the ball won't drop. And I pray none of my kids ever wanna be top. Young money get em, young money got em. The boss got his feet up, vacation on the island. Yeah, and tell your girls in the kite up. And even if you don't smoke, motherfuckers, you gon' have to light up. Nickel, nickel. Three upper. Yeah. You need me to do it again or something, man, or you got me, Mike? Man, nigga, you got that, blood? You got that? Bad, 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 bad.